Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 7th of January 2024, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking in the series, Outsiders Come to God, Rahab the Canaanite. Well, Christmas, of course, is now done for another year. And this Sunday marks the start of Epiphany. What's Epiphany? Well, it's the season where the church marks the revelation of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles to those outside of the people of Israel. Over Christmas this year, in our talks, we've looked at why certain elements are contained within the Christmas story. So if you've been to our Christmas services, but they're available online, if you've missed any of them, we've asked, why are the angels in the Christmas story? What's the particular significance of them in it? Same question with the shepherds, the same question with Augustus, with Simeon and Anna, and so on. And one part of the Christmas story that we could have included within that series, but we didn't, was those wise men, or magi, who came from the east following a star which led them eventually to Jesus. An epiphany is the time when we traditionally remember the wise men, with their gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh, and crucially with their role in showing that with the coming of Jesus, Membership of the people of God was bursting beyond the people of Israel to include potentially at least anyone and everyone, those from within the whole of the world. And this is a vital thing for us to remember, because right at the heart of Christianity, right at the heart of the coming of Jesus Christ is the truth that the God of Israel is for everyone. Look for a verse in the New Testament that sums this up, and we can't really do better than the one where St. Paul says to the Christians of Galatia, in the face of those who wanted to continue segregating the people of God, Paul said these words. He said this. He said, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Faith in Christ, baptism into Christ, being clothed with Christ, brings anyone and everyone who that's true for into that one family of Abraham. It makes everyone who that's true for heirs of those amazing promises that God made to Abraham and then fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Now this is a wonderful truth and the value of the earlier parts of the biblical story lies in the way in which this expansion of God's people through Jesus was anticipated in the earlier parts of the story. And as a result of the way the Bible's structured, with this wonderful truth being anticipated and worked towards in all sorts of ways, we can grasp more, I believe, about what it means for our lives. You see, if we were presented all in one go with the truth that God came in Jesus for everyone, we might not fully appreciate that. We might not fully understand just what it means. But if we go back in the biblical story and we see the way in which this wonderful outcome was worked towards and anticipated, I think it helps us pick up important parts of what it means for our lives. Specifically, we see more about God's grace. 
and the way that God's grace finds us in the mess and the imperfections of our lives, and it brings to those lives God's rescue. And this is very much true of the story that we're looking at this morning. The story of Rahab the Canaanite, which is the first in this series of sermons on outsiders come to God. What point are we up to in the biblical story at this juncture? Well, at this point, God's people, the Israelites, they've been rescued by God from Egypt through Moses. We're probably familiar with that story of the Israelites being taken through the Red Sea. They've been given God's law at Mount Sinai. They've also been given God's presence, and they are led then through the wilderness or the desert for 40 years before they then arrive at the Promised Land. Now Moses, who's led them during that time, he dies at that point, leaving Israel to enter the land under his successor, who is called Joshua. And chapter 1 of the book of Joshua, the book that bears his name, shows what was now meant to happen. And it all appears to be, at first, rather neat and tidy. Joshua is told that the people of Israel will now occupy the land, He is told that they should be strong and courageous because God is with them. And the deal involves the Israelites obeying everything that God's commanded through Moses and the law and supporting one another properly. But all is basically ready for the wicked Canaanites currently occupying the land to be driven out so it can be received by the faithful people of Israel. Now that's Joshua chapter 1. And as I say, when we read that chapter, it all looks nice and clear. It all looks very clean and tidy. The people of Israel under Joshua are told to trust and obey, and the promised land will be theirs. But then comes Joshua chapter 2, and it all begins to look a little bit more murky. Rather than just advancing into the land, as God appeared to have ordered, Joshua sends spies into the land to check it out, and particularly one of its cities called Jericho. And there those spies, for reasons that we're not told, enter the house of a prostitute or sex worker called Rahab. Now, the king of Jericho discovers that the spies are there, and he tries to capture them, only for Rahab to lie to the king by saying that those spies have left. She hides the spies in the roof of her house, and eventually she enables the spies to escape. Now Rahab does this because like the others in Jericho, she's heard about what God has done for the Israelites in leading them out of Egypt and defeating their enemies. And she recognises that Israel's God is, as she puts it, God in heaven above and the earth below. In other words, this God is sovereign over everything within the world. And as a result, and in return for her action in saving the spies, Rahab asks that she and her family are spared from the destruction coming upon Jericho. The condition that the spies make is that Rahab brings all of her family into her house and ties a scarlet cord in the window of her house. I think we've got a picture of it there, and that's the sign that she and those within the house aren't to be harmed. The spies then get away, and they report back to Joshua the fear within the Canaanites. Joshua and his army eventually cross the River Jordan into the land, 
And when Jericho eventually falls, and that's a story in its own right, they march around blowing trumpets, you might know the story of the fall of Jericho. But when that happens in Joshua chapter 6, when the walls come tumbling down, as the song puts it, Rahab and her family, who have obeyed those instructions, they're spared from the destruction that comes upon the rest of the city. Now, it is, in all honesty, a rather murky story for all sorts of reasons. And plenty of the questions that we have about it remain, frankly, unanswered. So what were those Israelite spies doing in the house of a prostitute? That's one question. How okay was it that Rahab lied to her own people and betrayed them? We're not given an answer to that question. And that's not to mention the problem common to large parts of the Old Testament of all of that destruction of human life that Rahab and her family might have been spared from, but which happened to everyone else, the story says, in Jericho. We're not really given an answer to those questions, but I guess that reflects a lot of what life is like. There's lots of stuff that happens in life, isn't there, that we're not given a definitive answer to. There's lots of questions we would like the answer to that we don't receive. But in and amongst all of this murkiness, in and amongst all of this stuff that we're not completely sure what to make of, the story does make certain things really clear. Certain points that I think can really help us. And the first is this. God has a place for those who appear to be outsiders. See, chapter 1 of Joshua, as I've said, makes everything appear very neat and tidy. Godly Israelites against wicked pagan Canaanites. Goodies versus baddies, we could say. But the story immediately undermines this. Compromise by Joshua and the spies is at the very least hinted at in this story. And we then get this stereotypical example of the very worst of pagan Canaanite culture acting on the side of God. The name Rahab does occur elsewhere in the Bible, and when it does, it represents a multi-headed sea dragon opposed to God's purposes. Now that may or may not have a connection with this particular story. That may be a complete coincidence, or it may be that the name Rahab is deliberately used here to reinforce the point that there is no part of God's creation, no person in God's creation, however fallen, that is incapable of being included within God's love and indeed God's purposes. And that's actually pretty reassuring, isn't it? Because the truth is that all of us have things in our lives that are inconsistent with the way that God wants us to live. Things about our lives in the past, perhaps our lives in the present, that we can be ashamed of. Too ashamed, perhaps, to let many other people know about them. But the story of Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who became part of God's people, shows us very clearly that no one is ever out of the reach of God's love, and it's never too late to respond to him. 
few chapters later in the book of Joshua, we see one of the established members of Israel, a man called Achan, who's got impeccable credentials, he's part of the tribe of Judah. We see him acting unfaithfully and receiving God's judgment. And Achan and Rahab, these two central characters in the book of Joshua, other than Joshua himself, and there's a character called Caleb who's pretty important, but Achan and Rahab are really the two central characters otherwise in the story of Joshua, and they're there to provide a contrast. A contrast between someone who thought he was an insider, but who received God's judgment, and someone who was thought by absolutely everyone to be an outsider receiving God's rescue. And a huge part of the message of the Bible is that God brings about just that sort of reversal. Because God has a place for those who appear to be complete outsiders. His love can reach them, and his love does reach them. And this is linked to a second point, which I believe this story makes clear to us, which is this. God meets people in the muddle of our moral compromise and our faith in him. Quite often those things are a real jumbled up mixture, but God meets us within it. You see, Rahab fairly clearly isn't perfect, is she? But neither are the spies or indeed Joshua. In fact, pretty much every human character in the Bible that we hear about in any depth other than Jesus has very obvious flaws. But whatever mess people have made of their life, the opportunity to respond to God with faith is always present. That faith might be muddled and confused. That faith might be rather mixed in its motives. But nothing can happen in our lives to prevent those moments occurring when we have the chance to place our faith in God and receive his rescue. It may be that a sudden crisis happens to someone who's ignored God for years, but they're suddenly presented with the opportunity to place their faith in God. Sometimes said that every crisis that happens in our lives can be seen as an opportunity if we look on it differently. And in spiritual terms, that's definitely true. Because very often it's only things going dramatically wrong. Very often it's only the sort of the bottom falling out of our life in some dramatic way or things collapsing that we once relied upon. Very often it's only that sort of crisis occurring that makes us freshly turn back to God and really grasp onto him with faith. Sometimes it does, sadly, take things to go badly wrong in our lives for us to turn to God. But that is an example of something that seems completely negative actually representing an opportunity. It's an opportunity very often to return to God or perhaps even to come to God for the very first time. This Wednesday at our classic film club, for those available in the daytime, as I said earlier, we're going to be watching the film Angels with Dirty Faces. Now, this film was made in 1939, and it's a film that starts with two young boys involved in petty crime, and the police uh, sort of catch up with them, and they run away from the police. And one of them, called Rocky, gets caught. He goes to reform school, and he grows up to be a gangster while the other boy called Jerry manages to get away and he grows up to become a priest. Now in the film, 
as I say, made in 1939, a long time ago, they eventually meet up again. And to find out what happens, you'll have to come and see the movie or borrow the DVD from me if you've got an annoying thing like a job that stops you being around in the daytime. But as well as having the theme, there but by the grace of God go I, which is a a major theme within this film, explicitly quoted, another major theme of this film is that it's actually never too late to respond to God. That angels can have dirty faces as the title of the film puts it. And near the end of the film, in a very dramatic scene, the gangster, played by Jimmy Cagney, uh, who's on death row, says to the priest, his old boyhood friend, played by Pat O'Brien, what more do you want from me, Jerry? And his old friend responds by saying, what I've always wanted, Rocky, to straighten yourself out with God. And in a rather dramatic and rather terrifying way that I won't give away now, that's eventually what happens. And a major and wonderful truth of the Bible story is, as I say, God meets people in the muddle of our moral compromises and our faith in him. We might be getting loads wrong, but we're clinging on by our fingertips, which represents faith in God and that is efficacious that works in hebrews chapter 11 the writer of that letter we don't know who it was the writer gives a great list of the people of faith in the bible and noah's there abraham's there isaac jacob joseph moses and rahab as we heard in our reading from dick earlier is also there and the writer to the hebrews says this about rahab by faith The prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And the very next book in the New Testament, the letter of James, that also mentions Rahab. It says something similar when it declares these words. In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in another direction. The reason why Rahab can be included, the reason why any of us can be included within the heroes of faith that belong to God is not actually because of the quality of our faith. That's not the crucial thing. The crucial thing is the one in whom that faith is placed. It's the quality of the one in whom we place our faith rather than the quality of that faith. Our faith can be faltering, It can be muddled, it can be compromised, it can be incomplete. But when we, however, imperfectly place our faith in the God who came in Jesus Christ for every single one of us, he always meets that faith with his grace. And at the start of 2024, at the start of a new year, it's worth considering where this might apply to us. Is there a particular current crisis in our life, which, if we look on it differently, actually represents a fresh chance for us to place our renewed faith and trust in God. Perhaps even to do that for the very first time. Let's be encouraged by this story of Rahab, this complete outsider who came to God to remember that it's never too late in this lifetime, certainly, to respond to God in faith. 
and to cling on to his promises. We may not understand, we may not get every part of it, we may be muddled or confused, but if we can see enough to reach out and grasp onto this God of love with faith, then we can be included within God's love and within his purposes. And it's partly because of the mysterious way that God operates. And that leads to a final point that we can take from this story this morning, which is this. Outsiders coming to God isn't just a peripheral part of the biblical story. It's central to it. Outsiders coming to God has a vital place within God's plan for bringing his rescue to the world. See, why some people turn to God and why others don't is a mystery. But when the Bible addresses this issue, it makes it clear that God does have a plan even if the precise details of that plan aren't disclosed to us. But the mystery in the way that God operates is demonstrated by these outsiders, people like Rahab, turning out to have a vital role in God's covenant plan. Matthew's Gospel, and therefore the whole of the New Testament, starts with a genealogy. It starts with a family tree. It starts with a list of names that traces the ancestry of Jesus in the large print there, so we don't miss it, all the way back to Abraham. And it's a list of names. And the crucial names at first sight are Abraham, who starts the genealogy, David, who's halfway through, and you get all sorts of other key figures within the Old Testament story. Now, the reason that genealogy is there, first chapter of Matthew, first chapter of the entire New Testament, is to show you cannot understand the story of the New Testament independently of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of everything that came before. And it's saying to us, if you're going to understand all this stuff that follows, you've got to understand it in that light. And the genealogy is entirely composed of male names other than five women who are included within it. Now, the last of those women is Mary, the mother of Jesus. But the earlier ones, the other four women that are included, are figures from the Old Testament who, through either their race or their conduct or both, could be seen as classic outsiders. And here they are. These are the four women, the four dodgy women, we could say, in inverted commas, who are included within this genealogy. You've got Tamar. Read the story of her in Genesis 38. You've got Ruth coming up in this series. You've got Bathsheba, described here as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, also part of this series coming up. And you've got, there she is there, Rahab. These names are included within this genealogy of the people of Israel leading up to Jesus to show that these outsiders coming to God wasn't incidental, wasn't peripheral to the biblical story, but central to it. Because it was central to God's plan of sending Jesus so that everyone could belong to God. And here's the little bit of the genealogy about Rahab. The first bit's typical of the rest of the genealogy. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, or Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Now we don't know who Salmon was. He may have been one of the spies. Even if he wasn't, he may not have been married to Rahab. We don't know that. 
But whatever was the case, their son Boaz was another crucial part of God's covenant story. If you know the story of Ruth, you'll know that it, uh, near the end, Ruth marries Boaz, and that continues the line of David, which, or continues to the line of David, which eventually resulted in the coming of Jesus. God, in other words, has a crucial part in his plan for the faltering, imperfect faith of this classic outsider called Rahab in his plan for the rescue of the world. Her action in turning to God in faith, however imperfect, turned out to be a vital plank in God's covenant plan for bringing his rescue, not just to the people of Israel, but beyond that, to include anyone and everyone who responded with faith in Christ. And the truth is that we'll never know how God is going to use our response to him or that of anyone, however unlikely a candidate they or we might seem for being used by God. Our lives, like that of Rahab, can be littered with mistakes, with misfortune, with disaster, perhaps through no fault of our own, perhaps when we look back, we think, yes, we've been very culpable in some of the things that have occurred, but perhaps done through insecurity or fear or whatever. But we can look back on our lives and think, those things that happened, if only they hadn't. But in the most disastrous lives, in lives that are plagued by the worst outcomes and the greatest hardships, nonetheless, the opportunity still comes, it always does, to respond to God in faith. And it is truly amazing what God can then do. How God can then use the faltering, imperfect response to him to then bring about. The story of Ahab, I, Rahab, I believe, makes that very clear to us. It's all part of the story of the amazing grace of God that's witnessed to throughout the Bible. And the grace demonstrated particularly clearly every time an outsider comes to God. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, at the start of 2024, perhaps with difficulties, crises perhaps in our life, hardships perhaps that we're coping with, would you lead us, Lord God, to see the opportunity that this also holds out to us to renew our faith and trust in you? Would you encourage us by the example of this person for whom so much seemed wrong in her life, nonetheless being able to turn to you and be used by you? And Lord God, would you stir us to respond to you right now, to place our faith and trust in you. And we ask not only that you would meet us with your rescue, with your salvation, but we pray that you would use us as part of your ongoing plan for bringing more of your blessing, more of your love to this world. We pray this in Jesus' name.